Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the time in which we can come and think about the world we live in, think about you, think about ourselves and how we relate to all of that. Help us, Lord, to conform our thinking to your thinking and our ways to your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This year for Gloria Sancta, we want to, want to talk to you about love. And love, as we'll see, is an extremely broad topic. But we want to see what it specifically looks like in relationship to others. Love is more than a feeling, though it certainly includes our feelings. And I'm all for falling in love as long as we know uh, what love is. And as long as we all, we're all in love with the right person or the right things. Love, like faith, always has to have an object. It's not, it's not something that's just theoretical or hanging out there in space. It's not just abstract. And there are different kinds of love. There, you know, we might love objects. You might love your car. We might love other things like ice cream. We might love beauty or music. But what we usually mean here is that we desire certain things and that we're usually willing to give up something to get it, whether it's give up some money to get tickets to the concert or that kind of thing, or to save up to purchase some item because we value those things, we desire those things, we're willing to sacrifice something else in order to obtain them. But this weekend we're going to talk mainly about how to love persons. Specifically, how to love our God, how to love our world, how to love our church, how to love our family, how to love our neighbors, and even how to love our enemies. What does the Bible say about these loves, and why is love so important? I want to begin by suggesting a couple of key facts. First, that the, love, that the world was created out of love. That was what motivated the beginning of creation. And second, that the world was created for love. That is the goal. That is the objective. And so we need a sound theology of love. We first need to know what that means is we need to know what God, God himself thinks about love. It's common in the epistles of Paul for him to begin an epistle laying out theology, but then turning to a practical application of that theology. And if your theology is not practical, then it's not true because it's missing something vital. It's not gone far enough. If you're the, um, and so theology is simply what God thinks about a given subject. There's a theology of time, a theology of marriage, a theology of work, theology of economics, and so forth. We can, because God thinks about everything, there's a theology of everything, and the Bible speaks to everything, either directly or indirectly. And so our goal is first to make his thoughts our thoughts, and then to make his ways our ways. So God doesn't just give us truth to keep theories in our heads. He gives us truth to set us free, to enable us to live the abundant life. For example, I ran across a quotation by Nancy Wolgamuth a few weeks ago that said, Great theology 
leads to good marriages. But I think we can expand that to say that great theology leads to a good life because great theology enables us to see life as it really is, or at least as it was really intended to be. Ideas have consequences. You've no doubt heard that. All ideas have consequences. Every last one. But consequences have ideas. That is, we can look at the fruit of someone's life. If you see a great marriage or a great family, there are ideas behind that. There's something that produced that, that fruit. Sometimes we start with the ideas and go to the fruit, but sometimes we can actually look at the fruit of something and say, what is it that produced this? What is it that made this attractive? And so... In my talks with you, I want to start with some ideas, some theology about love. And two things are central to the eternal trinity. We think about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity. Before there was a creation, there was communion and there was love. And so I want to begin by defining those two terms, communion and love. The word communion is made up of the words common and unity. It's also where we get the word communication. These are closely related to the idea of community. It's possible to have union without communion or community. The unity part is essential for community or communion. If you tie two cat's tails together and throw them over the clothesline, you have union, but you don't have communion. So... We want to be sure we have both. In order to have communion, there has to be love. That's why love is so essential. We were created to be in communion with God and with other people, and the opposite of community is isolation. Now, when we think of God, we think of love. First uh, John 4, 8, and, verse, and also verse 16, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. That's how closely uh, associated love is to God, is that they're in some ways interchangeable. Love is an essential defining feature of God himself, an attribute. However, as I've said, in order for there to be love, you have to have an object. And because without that, it's abstract. We must love someone or something. And so the eternal God has always had an object of eternal love in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity of the three persons demonstrates this eternal love. There is love within the Godhead. In fact, their relationships are defined by mutual love. And since God is eternal... Therefore, love has always existed. It, it wasn't created. It existed because God existed. And so the Godhead is engaged in this perfect, eternal dance of loving communion. Love always involves giving. It involves sacrifice. So now, God himself, who is love, sacrificed himself. This loving triune community sent forth one of their own, not to lay down his life for his friends, at least not initially, but to lay down his life for his enemies. Why would he do this? 
Well, he did it to turn his enemies into friends. The father had a mission to save his people, and the son came under that mission. In other words, the son was in submission to the father, and these were acts of love. In the Bible, the concept of love and sacrifice, I think, are basically synonymous. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for your friends. Through love, serve one another. And we could go on and on and on. Service, sacrifice, giving. So as we come to think about love in all the various relationships, self-sacrifice is going to be at the heart of what we're called to do. Selfishness is always the enemy. It's at the heart of immaturity as well. Every child is born selfish. Unfortunately, some of them continue to be selfish throughout their lives. Two two two-year-olds in a room with one toy is my definition of immaturity and selfishness. It's mine. It's mine. I had it first. Think about the initial call of Jesus to those who would follow him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So deny yourself, deny your family, your relationships, and your possessions. That's what love for Christ looks like. What then? Having submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, having made Him your ultimate love, He sends you back to yourself, back to your family, back to your possessions, back to your friends, to hold them and to love them the right way. In other words, to truly love them. So while love is about sacrifice, self-sacrifice, one of the paradoxes of Scripture is that such Self-sacrifice, rather than being restrictive or binding, is actually liberating. Thus, perfect love casts out fear. As we do unto others, we would, uh, as we would have them do unto us, lo and behold, others start doing the same thing toward us, sacrificing for us. And that's what happens in the community, in the church. As we give to somebody else, we receive. Give, the Bible says, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. That's the way God made us. Love is an expanding thing. Uh, In fact, that's what generates creation, I believe. The Trinity and its eternal love decided to expand that love by creating a bigger community. Creating us. Images of God. I remember how much I loved my first child. And I remember when my wife told me that we were expecting our second child, I had more than a few moments of concern that I would not be able to love a second child the way I did my first child. It was hard to imagine. The creation of the cosmos grew out of this of the Trinity's love and communion. Love is an expanding thing. And sure enough, of course, when my second child came, I had a lot more love. My love for my first child didn't diminish. My love expanded as the community expanded. There's plenty of love 
Now, the eternal trinity is a community, as we said, an eternal communion of love. And since the triune God has made us in his image, he likewise made us for that same kind of loving communion. We were meant to be together. We were meant to be together in love. Adam was created after God's image, and this means that he was to reflect the communion of the Trinity. And this is revealed in the fact that Adam was not created in isolation, but in covenant with the triune God. He walked with God in the garden. He was in communion with God. But there was still something missing, and thus God declared that it was not good that man should be alone. And so God, the triune God, decided to throw a ball And they invited us to the dance. So God's going to create a community. Adam, Eve, children, more children. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. With what? With God-loving, communing human beings. Images of God. God glorifiers. What does glorify mean? It means to magnify, to draw attention to. When something's glorified, it's lifted up where everybody sees it. So God says, I want you to see the love of communion and Trinity that that the Trinity has. I'm going to create images, and those images now are going to multiply. And as they do and fill the earth, I'll be glorified. And so the triune God creates... John 17, 22-23, And the glory which you gave me, Jesus said, I've given to them, that they may be one, there's communion, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect or mature in one. And remember, maturity is selflessness. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So love is critical to the mix, if you will. Robert Capon, one of my favorite writers, wrote a little piece that I, uh, and I love where he answers this question. He says, let me tell you why God made the world. One afternoon, before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, (laughs) new ways of being and new kinds of being to be. And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, Really? This This is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, terrific, I'll help. So they all pitched in, and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place, and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and mastodons, grapes and geese, tornadoes and tigers, And men and women everywhere to taste them, to juggle them, to join them, and to love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and said, Wonderful, just what I had in mind. Tove, 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 which is good, good, good. 
And all God the Son and God the Holy Spirit could think of to say was the same thing. Tov, tov, tov. So they shouted together, Tov miod, very good. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for beings to be, and how clever of the Father to think of the idea, and how kind of the Son to go to all that trouble putting it together, and how considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing. And forever and ever, they told old jokes, and the Father and the Son drank their wine in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other, world without end. Amen. It is, I grant you, he says, a crass analogy, but, a crass, but crass analogies are the safest. Everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, I'm afraid, is equally clear that God is not a cosmic force or a principle of being or any other dish of uh, celestial sweet dessert that we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash and leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. I love that image of this community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now expanding that communion and that community and that love into creation. Love is primarily, is primary, primarily because God is love. 1 John 4.16, again, and we have known and believed the love of God that, that, that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in God, abides in, excuse me, he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So love originates in the person of God, and we, being made in his image, are made to be reflectors of that love. We are made to extend his love and to glorify him by loving. We are told in Scripture, and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, faith looks to God and trusts Him for everything, and hope looks ahead to God and, and, uh, and what He will do in the future. But when we, we look beyond the moment and peer into the future with faith and hope, and when we arrive at the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be any more faith or hope because we won't need them anymore. And the only thing that will remain is love of those three. Love is the, that's why it's superior. And so if God exists, and he is everything, and love is central, then it abides forever. Uh, forever. Or if God doesn't exist, then he is nothing, and nothing matters. Love is, at best, a utility for survival, and it is temporary and meaningless. That's how critical this is. It's one or the other. Now, I've been setting the table for our discussion about how we are to love God and other people. My topic for the rest of this talk will be about how to love our God. It will be relatively short because loving God is primarily seen in how we love others, as Pastor Hadding mentioned this morning in our devotion. That will be the subject of the other talks. So let's talk about loving our God. A well-known passage emphasizes the place, importance, and the intensity 
that is required in loving God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That doesn't leave much wiggle room, does it? So let me stop right out of the chute and ask you, does this come close to describing how you love God? Your love for God is to be at the very top of your priority list, not second, not third, not tenth. It's at the very top. As a result, your attention to His every word will be a priority as well. Not just in your head, but also in your heart. Moreover, the fruit of this love for God will be seen in how you teach your children His word which will be all the time and everywhere, according to what the rest of this passage in Deuteronomy says. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk in the way, wherever you are, God is central because your love for Him is primary, and therefore His Word is central in your life. Let me continue from Deuteronomy 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Notice, I love this language. It's not just saying in your head. This isn't just about information. This is something that's here. It's something that's at the gut level in that emotional part of us that's critical. It involves the mind, certainly. These are words. They involve thinking and hearing and processing. But it's got to get from the head to the heart before we've done what God says to do. These words, which came through your eyes through reading or your ears through hearing and into your brain... These words I command that you get them into your heart. You shall teach them diligently, not half-heartedly, not on Sundays, not just in the five minutes of family worship. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, comprehensive. Early on in the Bible, then, we are commanded to love God. And not just to love Him in a casual way, but in an all-out fashion. He is to be the love of our life. He is to be our first love. And, of course, it's easy to know what or who someone loves, right? Easy. Spend five minutes with them and you'll know. What is it you notice about two people who are in love, besides sometimes it being a little sickening? (laughs) What do they think about? What do they talk about? How do they spend their time? You think we could figure it out if we could just see their text messages? Of course. That's why you don't have to guess. You know, as you go through life, if you meet somebody, uh, somebody that you might have some interest in, and I've said this before at these camps, but I never grow tired of saying it because it's so important. I've had so many occasions as a pastor to ask someone about 
somebody they're seeing or involved with, are they Christians? I think so. I'm pretty sure. Or worse, I hope so. Look, if you don't know, and if you don't know immediately, like in the first ten minutes that you meet them, you got a problem. They're not in love with him. He's way down the priority list. I love the beauty of the um, innocence kind of what I'm about to tell you. My grandson, Henry, who is a cousin to Rachel and Jackson, who is seven years old, uh, was lamenting the fact that he couldn't marry his mother. She said, why would you want to marry me? And he replied, because I love you so much. If I were dad, I would have chosen you. Sorry. If I were him, I'd marry you a million times. That's love. So one thing we can say about love is that it's not a secret. Nobody has to guess about what we love. We all love something or someone, and it shows. And while love has many private aspects, it's always a public thing as well. If it's not obvious to all, then it's probably not love. Love will always involve our desires, our affections, our thoughts, our emotions, our attitudes, and our behavior. God himself initiates love. The Bible tells us we love him because he first loved us. And we respond to his love by loving him and loving what he loves. And we have known and believed the love of God, that the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So if God is abiding in us, then we're going to love what God loves. That's the fruit. That's the evidence. So I want to speak to you about three aspects of our love for God. First, we love God because He's our Creator. We belong to God. He made us. We owe Him our allegiance and our loyalty, our love. This is what I call our first order love. It's basic. But sin turns that upside down. Sin is the opposite of love. Isaiah 29, 15, and 16. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us? And who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say to him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? In fact, we go to Romans 1, we see this same problem. God has created us, and God says the problem is because of sin, a suppression of the truth in unrighteousness, that they exchange the truth for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And they refuse to give thanks 
This is a, fun, it's a fundamentally wrong notion that a child would hate their parent, their creator. And yet, we in our sin find ourselves in that condition frequently. As creatures, love for God begins by acknowledging His place and our place. This is where beauty and harmony begin. A loving communion like the Trinity requires each person to do what God created them to do. What happened, what, what happened with Satan and the angels when they fell? They left their domain, the Bible tells us. They left their place. God created them for one thing, and they didn't like that place, and they wanted to be somewhere else. And they tried to become like God. We fell when we left our domain, and we tried to become like God. So the first act of loving our God is to acknowledge Him as our Creator and to assume our place as His creatures, to restore that natural order, if you will. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God, Yahweh, the Creator. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. That's the fundamental place where we begin. In Psalm 139, For you, God, formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And so having assumed our rightful position, love for God will be seen in our assuming our responsibilities and duties as his creatures. He is the boss of me, and not the other way around. Jude 6, again, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So we begin loving God by resuming that right order. He's the creator. I'm the creature. I owe him allegiance. Second, we love him as our redeemer. Since we have sinned by not keeping our domain, He moved out of love to rescue us. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love Him because He first loved us. His removal of our sin enabled us to be restored to what? Loving communion with Him. Paul says that as a result of this act of redeeming love, it had, a, had the purpose or the goal in mind, uh, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, buy us back from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. In other words... The evidence of his saving work for us will be seen in how we live. How we live loving, sacrificial lives, serving others, doing good works. 
It's not all about me. It's about Him. In gratitude now for what He's done for me, I now want to serve Him. And the main way we serve Him is in serving others. For we are His workmanship. And that word there uh, is the word where we get our word poem. We are His poetry, His poema. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good, think of good works as acts of love, acts of service, acts of self-sacrifice. That's what we were made for. And so our love for God is seen simply in obedience. Love and obedience are really inseparable. Imagine a child that says to a parent, I love you, and then promptly disobeys. I've seen many who live open lives of rebellion against God, all the while claiming to love God. In fact, if you suggest they don't love God, they'll be offended that you would suggest such a thing while they live in adultery or other openly sinful lives. The bond between love and obedience, though, is clearly established in the Bible. Deuteronomy 5.10 But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 7.9 Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Deuteronomy 11.1 Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His judgments, and His commandments always. Deuteronomy 11.22 and 23 For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Deuteronomy 36, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jesus is explicit in the need for our works to match our words. If you, it doesn't get any more straightforward than John 14, 15. And by the way, John 15, 14 says essentially the same thing. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23 through 24, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Communion. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. First John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Specifically, our love for God is then seen in how we love others. We must obey Him toward our neighbors, toward our families, toward our church, toward the world, and even toward our enemies. What does He say regarding how we treat each of them? That's, in other words, God, how do I love you? And God says, well, here's how I want you to love me. I want you to treat your husband and wife this way, and your children this way, and your neighbor this way, and your enemies this way, and the world this way. That's how you love me. Go do that. And so if I love God, I will obey Him in loving others. 
And of course, as our Redeemer, as our Creator, we owe Him worship, but also as our Redeemer. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So worship is an aspect of love. In fact, you always worship what you love. You may not ever think of it that way. If you love sports, you may find yourself worshiping sports. As our Redeemer, worship becomes our response to His having loved us. Remember, sacrifice and love are synonymous, and thus, as we love God, what do we do? We give ourselves to Him, living sacrifices. Hebrews 13, 15, Therefore by Him, Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to Him. That's worship. And worship is not just what we do in church on Sunday. Public worship is like choir practice or dance practice. So that we can go out the doors. We can, but what we do at worship on Sundays is we start the first day of each week. Not the weekend. It's the week beginning. And before we get started on another new week, on this resurrection day, where we get a fresh start, we're going to gather together with the family, the communion, we're going to gather around the family table, and we're going to be fed by the Father, fed His Son, ministered to by His Spirit, refocused, re-equipped to go out and live loving lives at our house, with our spouses, with our children, with our neighbors, wherever God has put us. And we're going to come back next week, and we're going to practice again. And we're going to practice every week for the rest of our lives until we get it right. This is how we establish the habit of love. And we don't love what we don't know. And then we love God the Creator. We love God our Redeemer. And then finally, loving our Father. In Christ we have access to the Father. Sin has been removed, so now we can enter again back into loving communion with Him. Remember sin separated Adam and Eve. God drove them out of the garden. They no longer walked with God. But God immediately promised a Redeemer. And that Redeemer did what? He redeemed them. He took away the problem so that they could now come back into that communion. Ephesians 2, 4-18, For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made both one, that is Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the hostility, that is, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby putting to death the enmity. You know, sin has created this enmity, this hostility between us and God. So God, God through his son, <coughs> takes that away. Now we can come back home. Now we can sit down at the family table. Now we can commune with him again. Communion is restored. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and those who are near, for through Him, through Jesus, we have access by one Spirit to the Father. According uh, Ephesians 3, 11 and 12, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, 
in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Love always includes peace and fellowship. And it is best represented by meals. The Lord's Supper. Let's sit down and eat together. I love you. I'm glad you're here. You have somebody to your house for dinner. Welcome to our table. Welcome to our home. Let's give thanks. There's all kinds of things going on at a table. And they're about peace and fellowship and love. Would you pass the potatoes, please? Okay. Thank you, Mom, for preparing this lovely meal. Thank you, Dad, for working hard so we have a meal. We have conversation. We have communion. We have fellowship. How was your day? At least that's the way it should be. That's what tables are for. That's a great picture. Now, the table is also a picture of what ought to be true in the living room and throughout the rest of the house and everywhere else you go. Those tables are focus points in which we have set before us, as Capon calls it, unnecessary goodness. You know, God could have just given us, you know, human chow in a tablet. You know, tasteless, gives us all the nutrition we need, but he didn't. He gave us, just like all these wonderful animals we see, he gave us wonderful food. Smells, colors, taste. Just lovely. Beauty, goodness, abundance, joy. And pictured in that is what else? Labor, sacrifice, work. You know what makes the best food? My, my mother has a banana bread recipe. And all of us, all of her kids, all of our grown grandkids have asked for the recipe, and we've all made it, and none of us can duplicate what she does. And I'm convinced it's the love factor. She may have some secret she left out on purpose, but, uh, but I'm not going to be that sinister. But you know, food that is prepared with love, it, there's a difference in that and what you get at Wendy's. Um, it's more than fuel. My point here is that we're back to this issue of when God brings us back together, it's not superficial and it's not just technical. And when we're, when we're told that we now have access to the Father, God is no longer the man upstairs. He's no longer aloof. He is our Father. He's glad you're here. Come in. Have a seat. Stay a while. Let's talk. Pour out your heart. Casting all our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. He really cares for you. And so, in communion, he speaks to us. The Bible is read, it's preached, and we speak to him in prayer. And then, as a result, we become imitators of our Father. That's what children should do, right? We have a perfect Heavenly Father. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. There's the example, the standard. And what? Given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Here's another food image for a sweet-smelling aroma. When God sees us gathered around his table, both literally and just in life, in communion. 
man, that smells good. That's wonderful. It doesn't get better than that. That's how we love God. I want to close just with a quote I ran across right as I was finishing uh, to get ready to come uh, from John Piper. The love of God is not God's making much of us, but God's saving us from self-centeredness so that we can enjoy making much of Him forever. And our love to others is not our making much of them, but helping them to find satisfaction in making much of God. True love aims at satisfying people in the glory of God, and any love that terminates on man is eventually destructive. It does not lead people to the only lasting joy, namely God. Love must be God-centered, or it is not true love. It leaves people without their final hope of joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the theology of love that you've given us. And as we've scratched the surface on that here this morning, help us to think more deeply about the centrality of love, particularly your love for us and our responding love to you. Help us, Lord, to make that a priority the priority in our lives so that everything else will be in order, so that we'll know how to love other people in the right way and for your glory and our good and their good and the good of the world. So bless us this week again as we continue to think about, meditate on these things and help us to apply them to the personal relationships that we have, beginning with our personal relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.